Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Derek Lee's Comscore career started directly after university and continued for more than a decade. He began as an analyst before pivoting into sales, a move that would launch his career within the company and take him all the way to senior director of sales. It should be no surprise that Standard Media Index tapped him to lead their foray into the Canadian market. Outside of work, Derek has a history of giving back, both within and outside of the media industry. Derek Lee stops by to chat about growing up in Markham, his time at Comscore, what brought him to Standard Media Index, tips for anyone looking to chase a promotion, his teaching career at Seneca College, and his passion for the culinary arts, but also how he's fused said passion with his philanthropic efforts. So Standard Media Index, or SMI, partners with basically the world's largest advertising agencies to really capture an actual view into advertising expenditure and pricing. And because we're capturing their spend directly from the agency's billing systems, we're really able to truly get an accurate view of ad revenues um, you know, across media publishers, in digital, television, and all other media types, um, and really, uh, really identify kind of the insights into ad spend across category verticals, and even look into pricing CPMs without really the use of any estimates or projections. And in my role as the VP of Business Development and Strategic Partnerships for North America, I am responsible for overseeing the Canadian operation across sales, client service, marketing, a product, um, and even our strategic partnerships with the industry associations. And then in the US, uh, in addition to my Canadian duties, I'm involved in the business development and strategic partnerships there as well. Derek, thanks so much for your time today. I'm looking very much forward to our chat, but let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Markham, Ontario. Um, Background is Chinese descent, although my parents went to University of Hawaii and they became westernized pretty early on. So Cantonese doesn't really come naturally for me, but yeah, I've been in Markham, Ontario for uh, the majority of my young life. And then safe to say I've been in the Toronto and greater area for my entire life. So your parents emigrated from China to Hawaii. And what made them, What made them? I guess, emigrate again to Canada rather than just stay within the United States after graduation? That's a good question. I think, I think just something with the program um, that kind of brought them to University of Hawaii in Hong Kong allowed them to then move into North America much easier. It had something to do back then with the um, immigration policy and um, subsidies to encourage, uh, you know, workers in North America to to come in to build the economy. Um, but I actually don't know. That's something I'll, I'll have to uh, investigate a little bit more with my parents. But yeah, I, th- I think there was some sort of incentive for them to to start their um, careers and life in in North America. Do they miss the Hawaiian weather? Like, do they wax poetically about it? (laughs) Definitely, I do too. I've I've had the privilege to go to Hawaii uh, a couple of times in my life. And uh, with with weather like we have in Toronto, you you definitely miss it. What was life like growing up in Markham? 
Oh, it was good. It was, you know, I, I would sum it up to say that, you know, me and my brother, we had a pretty straightforward and uncomplicated life growing up. Um, my my parents were both working full-time jobs in accounting and food service, respectively. And they were really able to provide my brother and I with all the extracurricular activities, the schooling, the daycare, all the what I would call the basic necessities uh, in life to be pretty happy. Um, my brother and I, you know, we had always um, had a really great relationship. You know, we would enjoy sports together. We'd build Lego as as, you know, young kids. We would love to take our GT snow racer down the big hills in Markham on snowy winter days. We'd do a lot of sports together. Um, and, you know, that's that's one of the biggest memories of growing up in Markham is just being in the neighborhood with friends, with my brother, playing sports all the time. And I think another thing about Markham, at least that resonates with me, was something that I'd probably take for granted today. It was really the ability to go to my friends' houses all the time. And I think, you know, having gone through a pandemic, all of us, um, that's not something that all kids can say today. Like even for my own kids, they haven't been able to do that for a couple of years. Go to a friend's house, play games, watch TV, try new foods, all those things, you know, a lot of kids haven't had the opportunity to do in the last couple of years. And you're only a kid for so long. So if you yeah. lose it for two years, that's a big chunk of your life. Exactly. Two or more years. It's going to be probably more where that, that comfort level doesn't come back yet. But that was a, a big memory of mine growing up in, in Markham, for sure. I love how you name dropped the GT Snow Racer, because if you grew, literally if you were a child in the greater Toronto area, I'd say even throughout the rest of Canada in the 80s and the 90s, that was something you wanted. That was like that was like the rich man's toboggan. For sure. It was. And and every time someone had it on the hill, you know, you got a lot of stairs. Um, but you would share it, too. Like, you know, there's that sense of community. You'd build a small little mound on the hill and you'd take flight sometimes and you'd let everyone uh, take a chance at it, too. So it was, it was really nice. But, yeah, great memory. And you were born and raised fully in Markham. Like you didn't relocate or move around anywhere at all. So you're a tried and true Markham boy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Yeah, pretty straightforward situation. We didn't move much. We we did move once, but we stayed within Markham. Um, and that was when I was in high school. So didn't really need to go through that transition of friends or a new uh, housing housing environment or anything. Um, try, yeah, t tried and true uh, Markham boy for sure. What were your hobbies or what kept you busy growing up? Oh, man, I, I think I already alluded to it, but sports was, you know, really ingrained in my life. And my parent, my parents, mom, mom and dad really allowed us to get into sports and have a, a big variety of it. Um, I played rep softball outside of school. And then while I was in school, whether it was through elementary or high school, I played volleyball, baseball, badminton. Even at one point, um, me and my partner, Mixed Doubles, we were at one point second in all of York Region um, through some of the tournaments that we would play. So badminton was a really, really big sport and, and hobby of mine growing up. So are we talking like Ropsa? Because Ropsa is Ontario and Ropsa, yeah. I think, was regional. So you were a Ropsa badminton player. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. And I, actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, um, hobbies growing up. I think there was something about magic tricks that I was really into. 
You know, I, I really enjoyed showing off magic tricks, I think, all the way into high school and putting on, you know, some sort of small, quiet performance, you know, with tricks that I would buy when we would go to Niagara outlet malls. You know, I would take these magic tricks and I would just perform them for, for friends um, all over school during breaks and recesses and everything. There are no magicians that were influences in your life. You say that it was really your immediate family. Why them? Yeah, I, you know, I think for me, my immediate family, you know, for many of us, we spend the most time with them. And I think my mom was probably, you know, I would call her still to this day, one of the hardest workers I've ever seen. You know, she would take a long commute to and from work every day. She would always manage to make a nice hot dinner, a stellar dinner for us at home each night. Um, and then, you know, me and my brother, we always got to go to school with a hot lunch as well, which not everyone has the the privilege to to do so. So I think, yeah, definitely my mom was a big influence on me. Uh, I think my brother too, you know, naturally being boys and him being a bit older, I think, you know, four and a bit, four years and a bit older than me. Um, he was all always ahead of me, you know, whether academically or athletically, and it was just easy to be challenged by him, learn from him, and really get to spend a lot of time with him. So I think just my brother, my mom, and my dad were probably the biggest influences in my life, for sure. There are a lot of parallels between your early working life and my early working life. You started off as a paperboy, just like myself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I And I feel like, I feel like, listening to your podcast, I, I hear a lot of paper uh, individuals as their first gig that like you almost need to change your your podcast to the the newspaper delivery media people podcast or something. Well, the funny thing about that, though, is, is that that's technically your first media job. If you think about it, I mean, it's true. <laughs> if you yeah, it it's down. true. So were you delivering a free paper, local paper, or was it uh, one of the paid subscription? I was. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, that that was that was uh, maybe perhaps the differentiator, but yeah, it wasn't. It, it was a free. The Economist and Sun, the town of Markham local paper, that was free and not a subscription service. Yeah. Oh, I can't even think of what it would be like to collect. I had friends who had to, and you'd hear the horror stories about how people would open the door for them. Yeah. Like you clearly are learning a lot about life, but come on, yeah. to basically be robbing from a child who's just trying to scrape together money to buy action figures, it's a little yeah. low. Exactly. Exactly. You, That's you why I also a well. lifeguard. Sorry, I've cut you off there, but you were also a lifeguard as well. Just like me, you started off. What did what did they call it in Markham? Because in Mississauga, they called it a tote. What did you oh. guys call it? So, um, yeah, I, no, I started as a lifeguard. Um, actually, my first job with the town of Markham in that setting, the swimming pool setting was actually a change room attendant um, at the age of 14. You know, in one of the busiest swimming pools in Markham, I would sit near the change room doors. And really, my responsibility was to keep the floors dry and clean. And then kind of as a secondary responsibility, you know, just having a Town of Markham shirt on, um, it would naturally prevent some theft that was very common in locker rooms. So yes. that was kind of a, a, a dual responsibility. But yeah, the, after the change room attendant for a couple of years, I did become a, a national lifeguard and, and swim instructor and got to um, do a lot of the fun stuff that lifeguards do at the uh, at the swimming pool. 
So you got to be a change room attendant without having your your NLS because in Mississauga, you needed your NLS to be a change room attendant. But back in the day when I was lifeguarding, they had some they had some ass backwards rules where it was like you could be 16 to get your NLS, but you could not guard until you were 17. So you kind of spent this if you were like what happened was you kind of spent one year in this sort of like purgatory where like you, I sat there like, like, let me guess people would give you like, would you give out like a green mesh bag and they would come back and you give them a tag for it. And then they yeah. have to wear the tag in the pool. Yep. And Definitely. I had to clean the change rooms too. I knew all about that. That was part of it. Yeah. I think, yeah, there were probably different rules that I didn't even realize, but the town of Markham, you didn't need your NLS to be change room attendant. Um, but uh, yeah, you could only get your NLS um, up until 16 uh, and then I think you had to, your birthday had to be before the exam. And I think I was like two weeks uh, after my exam, um, uh, I, I got it. So it was, it was, you know, at one point, I think I was the youngest lifeguard in the town of Markham at 16. But uh, yeah, perhaps there's, there's a, a couple differences in the rules. Let's trade some stories about being a lifeguard and a swimming instructor, because I had to do that as well. Do you think that this job or that job gave you the patience to handle everything because when you're sitting there in cold water at nine o'clock in the morning on a saturday and kids are screaming at you and parents are angry because why can't my swim my kid swim yet and you're like your kid is four they're just getting used to putting their face in the water yeah i mean nothing breeds patience more than that yeah yeah you, you know patience was definitely tested on a daily basis but it was also like being under the pressure of planning um, lessons and having kind of a visible lesson sheet in front of you so that parents can see and all of that kind of it was like time management it was uh, it was a lot for you know at the time when when people are 16 is you're still learning a lot and having to make sure that they're all safe in the water for the first time is it was definitely a lot of patience was tested during that time. The things we did to avoid minimum wage as teenagers. I know, totally. So what brought you to Wilfrid Laurier University and why did you study business? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think, you know, it it was probably for me just a little bit more of a natural fit. Uh, during high school, I think, you know, when I, I took business courses or data management courses and, you know, m mathematics and calculus, I think I, I did fairly well. I excelled in those areas. Um, so naturally, when I was deciding on where to go and what path to take, um, I, I chose that prestigious school of business at Wilfrid Laurier University because it seemed to, I think a lot of the decision came from you needed high marks in order to get into a particular school and that's what made it attractive for you and that's what kind of led me there. So I went into the, the BBA program there and uh, through four years, I earned a master's in marketing and also got a minor in urban studies. But I think it was just, yeah, it was just a natural fit. And uh, kind of the courses that I really enjoyed taking throughout high school kind of led me there. What was it like moving out for the first time? Like, clearly Markham isn't light years away from the Kitchener-Waterloo area, but this yeah. has got to be the first time that a lot of the creature comforts that you grew up with were gone. It was great moving to a small city and being on my own, I think you know, kind of throwing yourself uh, into the fire was really um, beneficial, at least for me, just to learn how to live and um, social skills and kind of balance the 
the the play and and working hard aspects of life um but i also my parents you know i was lucky that they didn't mind the drive and so anytime i wanted you know to have a meal with them or to get groceries with them or just to have them um you know within an hour and 40 minute drive they were willing to do that and uh you know it, it was really nice so i i felt like i was far enough um, but not too far where I couldn't see my family too. After graduation, this is where your media career kicks off. I guess you could say your professional media career, not to take away from being a paper boy, but you landed, you landed at Comscore. So let, let's, let's talk about that first. How did you find the role and did you even know about Comscore before you discovered the opening? Oh, it's a great question. Yeah. So I, w- I was lucky to know about Comscore prior to the role, um, uh, prior to starting there and and kind of my search for a job. Um, I actually had a professor who worked part time at Wilfrid Laurier uh, in the marketing program, but it was also part time at Comscore. Uh, his name is Javier Banzel, and um, he was actually the one where uh, I approached and had the opportunity to talk to him about some uh, opportunities that he knew about, and he referred me to Comscore. And I went through an application process, interview process, and uh, you know it seemed to work out. But yeah, you know I would say that I had that privilege to have someone refer me in, but um, they were looking for an entry level role. And I think I, if I remember correctly, I started like one week after my final exam in my fourth year. So I didn't really have much of a break. But uh, yeah, I kind of it was kind of the the serendipitous um, reunion of me finding the job, but also um, Comscore finding me. You're probably one of very few of your peers that already had a job lined up right after, like not say right after graduation because convocation is like two months after, but literally yeah. immediately after the lease expires on uh, on the place you were renting in Kitchener-Waterloo. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and again, it, it was definitely a privilege to to have that opportunity. But I think going back to your question about Comscore, like I didn't know too much about Comscore, so I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, didn't know much of the media space, the measurement space. Um, so it was really kind of a starting foundation for me to learn and grow. And uh, little did I know that I would have 13 years ahead of me working at Comscore. Well, you started first as an analyst. So what did your initial role entail there? Being an analyst, um, I was hired on to really look at the data. Uh, obviously, with Comscore as a measurement company, there was a lot of data. Um, and really help find the stories for our clients and kind of build industry presentations and narratives that would help Comscore kind of build their business in the market. Um, You know, so, you know, visitor trends, looking at uh, understanding mobile at the time in 2008, 2009, that was a time where mobile continued to grow, the year of the mobile, and, um, you know, bringing a lot of new solutions into the market over time, we just, um, you know, it was it, an analyst was kind of just required to look at a lot of the data. Did you find that you were reaching into a lot of your managerial accounting class experience? Because that's what I find when it comes to reaching into data and trying to tell a story. And it just yeah. takes me back to those classes where they would force you to look at the balance sheet or an annual report for a company and been like, okay, putting aside all the conjecture that they on all the fluff they've got on all the other pages, just based on the balance sheet, what can you tell us about that company? Because I find that's what we're doing a lot with the data now. 
Yeah, totally. It's it's extracting the data into Excel or today into other different types of data programs and visualization programs. But yeah, I think I think it it, it was going back to high school and really looking at balancing you know the the balance sheet and taking a look at all of the different metrics that could help influence a story i think that yeah you 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 hit the nail right on the head let's keep going through your journey at comscore because eventually you're promoted to senior analyst and when they tack senior onto it what are they expecting from you now <laughs> yes you know that, that's actually a, I, I i have to think of that a little bit because I'd say that the role didn't change much, um, but I think just overall the the importance of the responsibilities expanded. Um, as the business continued to grow, we got more clients, more and more big clients. Um, and even through the years during that time when I was senior analyst, we launched a new product for verification and campaign measurement. Um, you know, it was just looking at more and more data it was finding more and more stories. It was also kind of being tacked on to actual clients and being the day-to-day contact to manage those conversations with our, our main contacts at all of our client businesses. So that that role just expanded, that senior analyst role just expanded to become more of a prominent figure, a, a name that you know our clients would reach out to when they had a question or when they needed training um, kind of thing from Comscore. Still sticking with Comscore because you said you were there for what, 13 years? Yeah, 13 years. 13 years. You made the pivot to account manager. And I call that a pivot because I guess you could say you're getting out of your comfort zone a little bit and you're moving into sales. Did that opportunity find you or was there always the allure to sales? Because I imagine you were working hand in hand with the other account managers and seeing what they were doing. Uh, You know, I I was um, very much attracted to sales, but I, I don't know where it came from. I, to be honest, I think the 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 lure of sales really came from the reward that came from it. Like, uh, obviously, the compensation side of things was very attractive. So there was that kind of inflection point where I had to consider, should I stay in, in client service um, or should I move into sales? And, you know, I, you know, not everyone has the opportunity to make that choice. And I did have that opportunity with my um, managers to make that switch. And so I think I what happened was I started as a hybrid role where I was still kind of a senior analyst, but I started to manage a small book of business. And, you know, over time, as I was promoted into senior account manager, director and director of sales, um, I think just over that time, I was able to grow my book of business um, grow my quota, hit those numbers, and really continually learn from you know the variety of great clients that Comscore worked with, and kind of build on that knowledge and build on that expertise and skills to to continue to grow. Do you have any advice for anyone listening that wants to grow within their own company? Like, what can they do apart from just doing their job as well as they can? Are there other things that they need to be thinking about? Maybe even just I don't know, going into their boss's office and saying, hey, I'm happy here. Here are my career goals. I'd love to continue them here. How can we work together so I get the experience so you trust me with more accountability and responsibility? You know, it, it forces me to reflect a little bit on on my time there and how I, you know, what, what someone called climb the corporate ladder. You know, I, I think it sounds cliche, but 
I've always lived by the notion of not being afraid to ask questions, you know, like you said, knocking on your manager's door. And, you know, for me, you know, I, I even think it's something that's deeply ingrained in a lot of formal sales training, too. And so, you know, when I think about questions, uh, I, I feel like I ask questions all the time and I'm learning from, you know, people that report to me from my senior leadership. Um, you know, I think it's always of benefit to you when you ask a question, but it also gives the opportunity for the person you're directing the question to, to open up, to elaborate, to um, impart their experience, experiences and their skills to you that something, you, you know, you, you can't take for granted. And, um, you know, I think something that really I felt in my career, at least at, at the Comscore um, organization was very uh, successful for me was asking those questions and identifying kind of opportunities and needs and narratives through asking questions. Um, I think another piece of advice that I would give um, is really just um, being a little bit more efficient with your time. Um, you know, the more responsibilities that one can cover in the same amount of time, I think just makes you um, invaluable across uh, any type of company, whether it's a, a public company or a private company. And, you know, I, I, I have to give credit to my managers at the time at Comscore, Brian Siegel and Brent Burney. A lot of you, your listeners and you, Victor, know Brian Siegel. Um, the vice chair of the IAB, and I think he, he's still in, he's, uh, in that senior vice president role at Comscore. He was a great manager to me, you know, guiding me in ways to expand my knowledge and challenge myself to grow professionally. And, uh, you know, to this day, they're both still uh, very big mentors to me in my professional life. And, uh, you know, I love keeping in touch with them, uh, even though we're in different companies. So how did the opportunity to join Standard Media Index present itself? Did you find the role or did the role find you? So, yeah, the role at SMI found me. Um, you know, I, I won't name names, but a, a great industry friend referred me to the CEO. And um, to be honest, the first chat in my mind was positioned as a potential partnership conversation and not, you know, a job interview or even an informal chat about opportunities. So James Fennessy, our CEO at SMI, he gave me the impression of someone that can really lead a company and was very passionate about doing that as well. And, you know, not because I'm here now at SMI, but I really felt and still feel that the Canadian market um, was really in a need for more transparency. And you know the 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 approach that we've taken with our data really allows us to give an actual view of ad spend and pricing um, that I think can really benefit supply and demands um, the supply and demand of media. So you know it, it found me, but um, you know definitely again I'll use the word serendipitous again um, how it found me and um, the opportunity that we have. We had when I started and we continue to have today. Was there a bit of shock, though, when you started with them? Like, let me relate it back to myself. I had the opportunity to bring my current company to Canada. And I remember my very first day I sat down in my home office because it was during the pandemic. And I remember looking at my computer, the computer they had sent me and said, OK, this is it. You have been pushing for this for a number of years and you finally have your opportunity. Does it just kind of does it sink in and hit you that you 
you finally have something that you've possibly been chasing for a number of years, that leadership role. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a, a lot of parallels to to the sentiment that I had too. Um, it was, you know, I, I think the shock also came from me being at a public company in Comscore with, you know, almost a thousand employees and then moving to a smaller size private company. There was a lot of change, but definitely when you talk about um, the dream, which is, you know, it's different to everyone. But for me, it was having that senior leadership role and being able to oversee a lot of different departments and the growth of a of a company overall in the Canadian market was a goal of mine that um, really fell kind of in my in my uh, lap and an opportunity for me, which was really nice. Outside of this, though, you've also been educating the leaders of tomorrow uh, at Seneca College. A lot of my guests have had the opportunity to do that as well. I'm going to ask you the same question. What were you teaching there? I had um, that opportunity to teach uh, in the School of Marketing. Uh, I was teaching a market research course, which was part of a social media graduate certificate program. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was a great opportunity and a, a great opportunity for me to just develop my skills and um, obviously help. You know, one of the main missions was to help the next generation of talent kind of find their way whether it was in media overall or social media specifically, um, you know, and, and from a development perspective, it um, also challenged me to uh, do a lot more research into um, measurement and surveys and quant qual primary, secondary research. Um, and, you know, the, you know, in the media space, as you know very well, Victor, there was a, a real need to keep case studies and written exams and you know projects updated with new content, um, and that was that was good and and it was it was actually nice too because I had to or sorry I got to teach on Saturday mornings so still had to keep my full time job going um, on weekdays with Comscore and then um, at nights I would prepare for my Saturday morning three hour session with the with the students at Seneca. You know what I like about teaching? And I've had the opportunity to guest lecture at uh, Humber College and Centennial College. I really like that one, you're in full control of the presentation. And two, it allows you to refine your presentation skills as well. Like you get to do a bit of A-B testing that you might not be able to get to do with your full-time job because you've got maybe more of a rigid script you have to stick to. Do you find that as well? I, I like the performance aspect of it. 100%. Yeah. And it was it even goes back to earlier in our conversation about being a, a swim instructor, right? Like it was it's a challenge to um, kind of impart your knowledge and your skills to, uh, you know, younger folks that um, don't know much about the media space and um, being able to also be in front of the crowd um, helped me definitely refine those presentation skills that uh, at the time, too, at Comscore, I started doing a lot of a lot more public facing presentations. So it was that a little bit of that A-B testing that you describe. Before you do a presentation, do you have something that gets you psyched up, kind of like how an athlete will listen to a certain song or anything, anything like that, that really gets, I guess, really gets the adrenaline going? Nothing really. I, I would say that um, on an index level, I think I am a little bit over indexed on um nervousness prior to a big presentation um 
what I do is I, I do a lot of the practices that kind of the, the, the books tell you to do before a presentation. So uh, really, you know, doing all the tongue exercises, getting a good night's rest the night before, um, being able to make sure that you are well prepared and well versed and well practiced. I think those are the things that I stick to the most often, but nothing really from a music standpoint or a, a hype. I just I just try to stick to those basics of of being well prepared. Is that something that you do, Victor? Is you get a, a song hyping you up? I might listen to an odd song that really picks me up, something a little bit more orchestral, I'd say. But if I find if I find that I'm in a bit of a funk, like I mean, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but any any sales professionals who are listening to this, there are these certain lulls where it seems like you will send out a bajillion emails and no one will get back to you. It just it's yeah. going to happen every year. And yeah. I find myself before I go into that one meeting that, you know, that was very difficult to get, I'll find myself playing. God, what was it again? It's the inside the actor studio interview with George Clooney. And mm. the reason I play that is because he is packaged and sold to us in present day. Like he is the king of Hollywood, like nothing can bring him down. But when you listen to his story, he has had so many peaks and valleys and so many instances where Hollywood was maybe just a hair away from turning their back on him and him having no career that wow. it's kind of refreshing to know that everyone has a second act. It's not that dramatic for me. I don't like the way I'm putting it per se. It seems like, oh my God, it's, it's so bad for me. It's not, but you have those moments where you lose a little bit of confidence going, Hey, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not getting people's attention? They said they were going to buy this and they didn't. And so I kind of reflect back on the fact that, you know what, everyone has the same struggles. Maybe not everyone's very vocal about them, but the very few people that are going to be vocal about those structure, those struggles, it kind of gravitates to those stories because it kind of helps me hit the reboot button a little bit on myself. Yeah. I hear you. It's it's like a self-actualization type um, moment. I, ha I have to check out that George Clooney um, segment. I, I, I don't think I've seen it, so I'll uh, take your recommendation to, to look into it. It is a very, very good interview. Basically, he says that after Batman and Robin, he realized that his Hollywood career was about to go bust unless he was very selective with his um, with his uh, future films. And he credits Ocean's Eleven and Steven Soderbergh, who was in the same boat as he is as a director where no one he had had a series of flops and no one wanted to hire him. And Ocean's Eleven was basically the reboot button. And if you think of Batman and Robin, what was it known for? Rubber nipples in the bat suit, 1997. And then in 2004, he's collecting the Oscar for best supporting actor for Syriana. So yeah, anything true. can change. Yeah, very true. But very outside true. of all of this, I don't think a lot of people know this about you, but you are, I don't know if I can, I think foodie is underserving it, but you've also been working towards becoming a chef. Maybe a little bit more limited than that. Um, it is, a, I'll call it a side passion of mine. Um, so I did do culinary school um, part time for a little bit, um, but that was a, a handful of years ago. And I don't think I'll, I'll necessarily continue. I think one day uh, I have the dream to open a restaurant, um, maybe in retirement from the media industry. But uh, yeah, no, I love I love cooking. I cook for my family often at home here. And, uh, you know, it, you know, it's a it's a real big passion of mine. And I think. Uh, I, I've had the privilege to recently to be named to the board of directors at North York Harvest Food Bank. And so, you know, just the idea of food, not from a, you know, I would I would contrast it against being a foodie or a blogger um, in, in the food industry. I'm more 
around the importance of food and, you know, challenging the um, policy around food insecurity and understanding how poverty and affordable housing and, um, you know, being able to just uh, live day by day is a big challenge for many and for many of us and many, many people in the Toronto area. Um, and so it kind of has taken a little bit of a, a side parallel path on that. But yeah, overall, it's, it, it is a big passion of mine, food overall and cooking and understanding why it's important and the health benefits and all of that. It's an it's a important aspect of my life. It's funny that you bring up food insecurity. That's a term I just learned literally a couple of years ago, even though I, based on its definition, I already knew that it was out there. But when you think about it, if a young child or even just an adult can't get a decent meal, like we're talking a nutritious meal and they're forced, they're forced to eat fast food or I mean, just anything off the counter that that's cheap and cheerful, that has a ripple effect because that impacts your mind and your body. And then that ripple effect goes even further because it leaks into your work, or your education and your relationships as well. It does. It does. And and the root causes start much earlier on. It's not it's you know, when people think of food banks, they think about canned goods and donations and then redistributing that food. It's more than that. Food insecurity is about um, being able to have, you know, you know, not everyone is able to even have access to, you know, the COVID vaccine equally, right? And a lot of those things are all tied together when it comes to housing and the economy and poverty rates and unemployment rates. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very big, um, and it's been accelerated by the pandemic. That's for sure. So it's a it's an important aspect of life that I encourage many to, to, to look into and be educated on for sure. Okay. So I wanted to bring one thing up about two things tied together. One, your uh, passion for the culinary arts and two, the fact that you're from Markham. Did you ever watch the Netflix show, Ugly Delicious? Ah, oh, you know what? I heard about it, but I, I have not seen it. No. Oh my God. Okay. So you've got to check it out. Because uh, David Chang, he season two is not as good as season one, but just the way it's structured is, is that every episode will focus on one specific type of food from a culture. And then what they'll do is they'll use that as a nucleus to kind of go out and talk about the history of the food or the history of the ingredients. I'll give you an example. In the pizza episode, they will talk about pizza, but then they'll go back to Napoli, Italy. They'll talk about buffalo mozzarella and what it takes to be made and you know, what places are known for it and so forth. So you get a real history lesson. And there's one that came to mind was they have an episode on fried rice. It's really about Chinese food, but they start with fried rice as that one kind of common dish that everyone knows before branching out. And because Netflix has got crazy amounts of money and they can spend millions of dollars to send some guy somewhere for two minutes or one day, there's literally like they don't even set it up. You blink and David Chang is talking to someone at, uh, oh God, it's a, basically Spadina and Dundas. So Chinatown in Toronto. And they're looking around, they're just like, yeah, this looks like, you know, they've got a lot of great Chinese restaurants here because the whole thing that they're trying to argue is, is that the Chinese food that we know in North America is completely westernized. It's nothing like it is. And then literally you blink 
And all of a sudden he's like, well, now we're in Markham, Canada. And I'm like, did he just say Markham, Canada, the same way people say like Tokyo, Japan or Rome, Italy or London, England. And there was this one restaurant there and they go in depth there where the gentleman who introduces David Chang to the actual owner, he's basically like, if you want authentic Chinese cuisine done the way it is in China, he's like, this is the only restaurant that he knows of in North America that was doing it that way. And then they did a whole segment there and started talking about the different types of food. They get a good shots of the restaurant. So nice. you've got to watch that. Like you, like, it's just, you, he doesn't, you don't even set up Mark. I mean, it's just, boom, it's there. Yeah, I need those notes from you. I gotta, I gotta catch that episode for sure. Just go to uh, Ugly Delicious season one and just whatever. I think it's like episode four or five about fried rice, and just boom, he's just right there all of a sudden. It's, it's a great episode. Perfect. Will do. All right, nice. Derek, are you ready for rapid fire questions, my friend? I am. Let's do it. The campaign you're most proud of. Uh, so being in the measurement space, you know, I wasn't involved directly with campaigns, but. One that I love in the Canadian market um, is, you know, I thought it was one of the best execution uh, campaigns uh, because it's specific to our market. So Mark's, uh, you know, many would know as a retail apparel brand under the Canadian Tire banner. They worked with the Weather Network to display promotional discounts um, that was actually based on the actual temperature. So on digital out of home boards, you would see, you know, it's negative 15 degrees Celsius. And you could go to the marks nearby, the physical brick and mortar, and receive 15% off your purchase. So I thought it was just a great execution of tying media to a physical store. Um, Obviously, digital and out of home overall had a hit um, in the pandemic. And I just, that's one campaign that always sticks out. I wonder if that was a hyper-localized campaign. Because if I was in Churchill, Manitoba, and that campaign was running, I'd be like, hello, free wardrobe. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's true. Your favorite movie? Uh, I'd have to say The Lion King. Uh, that has stuck with me all my life. Okay, so you said all your life. I imagine this is the animated one and not the, uh, I guess, live action one that John Favreau put out a couple of years ago. <laughs> Correct. The original. The original. <laughs> the original. The Jonathan Taylor Thomas version. Exactly. Your favorite video game? Ah, uh, it's going back to my childhood again. Definitely Super Mario Brothers, uh, from classic and all the way to the new kind of uh, Super Mario Brothers U versions on Nintendo Switch. Okay, but you've got to pick one. Oh, it's yeah, it's Super Mario Brothers U, the the current version. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Oh man, I feel like I. I'm going to intentionally not choose someone of of uh, Chinese background. I'm going to I'm going to choose Keanu Reeves. Actually, uh, Keanu Reeves is of Chinese descent. It's on his fa- it's on his father's side. It, it's 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 mixed obviously cuz yeah. I read up a lot on uh, I read up on literally actors Wikipedia pages. Like that is like yeah. how I get my biographical information on people and he is uh, he, I believe he's a mixture of Asian, Caucasian, and Arab as well, because he was technically born in Beirut, Lebanon, yes, uh, but Beirut, uh, Beirut. But I believe his father's actually of Chinese descent. Oh, well, you learned something new. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you want to call it? I gotta, I gotta tie it back to Keanu as an actor, but you know, he plays uh, like a silent killer very often, and he does it very efficiently. So has to do something with being efficient I, I would probably call it like hurry up or something and that's kind of the story of my life my wife would always 
always says that I can't sit down and relax for any second. I've, I've always got to be doing something and I've always got to do it quickly. So hurry up is what I would call it. Your favorite book? You know, I've, I've never been a big reader of fiction books, um, but one I did enjoy growing up again, going back to my childhood is The Jolly Postman. Um, it's a book, you know, that has a lot of different envelopes and letters inside that you can pull out and read. Uh, it's a it's a really good one. And now that I have kids, I, I've been able to pass it on as a uh, as a great read. Your favorite song? Ooh, um, I, I listen to a lot of trance and house, so it would be Sun and Moon by Above and Beyond. Your favorite podcast? Well, really enjoy yours for sure. Um, <laughs> you don't but, have to say mine. It's all good. Well, it is. I, I thank you for listening. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I, I listen to the journal and the daily and you're going to ask me to choose one. So I'm going to choose the daily. Uh, really enjoy Michael Barbaro and all the work that, that, that their journalism is doing. I'm going to take something from Michael Barbaro right now and go. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he goes. Hmm. People who listen to that podcast will totally know what we're talking about. It's an inside joke among the daily listeners. Yeah, yeah. The best advice you have ever received? To ask your question prepared with an answer. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I think I would say um, to keep going, take risks, you know, fail more um, and learn from them. I don't think I, I took enough risks. And I think that, you know, that's what I would encourage myself to do. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I think I'd honestly be happy with being a stay-at-home dad, you know, making meals, uh, planning activities, going out to do sports with the kids. Um, makes me contemplate, you know, retiring right now. <laughs> well, if we can get inflation under control, yeah. it might happen sooner than later. Derek, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation, Victor. I really enjoyed it. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.